Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park. And today, we're going into the third dimension. After John Hancock left Jaws 2, production designer Joe Alves was almost instated as a director. It was not until 1983 that he would finally be given the chance to direct. Jaws 3D would be Alves's one and only directing credit. Whilst not fondly remembered these days, Jaws 3D has a lot going for it. First and foremost is that the serious take on the third Jaws movie saved us from a truly dreadful sounding send-up, Jaws 3 People Zero, a painfully unfunny and racist parody that got pretty far into pre-production before finally getting the axe. A reported $2.5 million were spent on a movie that didn't happen. The idea of a Jaws parody is not new. Keith Gordon wrote his own whilst on the set of Jaws 2, and the idea would not die with this attempt. The original script for the third Jaws film featured the shark arriving at a lake, swimming in from the ocean. This idea was by Richard Matheson, who is credited with the final script, even though Carl Gottlieb was again brought on last minute to vastly rewrite the thing. Matheson was involved up to the theme park change, but at the time of his version, it was still a generic park not having the SeaWorld name. Matheson's version notably featured zero references to the Brody family. The idea to eventually make the film in 3D apparently happened after John Landis pitched a Creature from the Black Lagoon remake in 3D, and Universal ditched the creature and brought the idea to the Jaws franchise. It is notable that the final version of the film bears more than a little resemblance to the original Creature from the Black Lagoon's sequel, Revenge of the Creature, in which the Gill Man is trapped and put on display at a theme park. Ray Arbogast returned once again to make the shark, and this time the thing was 30 feet long. Arbogast's experience ensured the film went under budget, which was a first for the Jaws franchise. Arbogast had a falling out with Universal after this film, and as such, he was not involved with Jaws the Revenge. Thankfully, Alves had learned from two hellish Jaws shoots and had the effect scenes made in a water tank. The issue is, they didn't have one large enough available to facilitate the effects work they needed, so they had to build one from scratch. The final tank was 26 feet deep and 110 feet across. Heated by solar panels, the water was kept at 76 degrees. They had a huge issue with visibility as their initial filters made the water unfilmable. Luckily, they brought in a new set of filters and were off to the races. The final sequence of the shark barging into the control room cost $50,000 to enact. They built the control room set and then lowered it into the tank with a crane. The sequence was too dangerous for the cast to be in the room when the water rushes in, so they required stunt doubles to take the rushing water head on. There are a few ocean set sequences as they needed to find a way to get the shark from the ocean to SeaWorld. Real SeaWorld is landlocked. As such, they constructed the Seagate and filmed elements of the water skiing sequence in Key Biscayne, Florida. When on set at SeaWorld, they had free run of the park and were able to film wherever they wanted. The Undersea Kingdom was not a real part of the park, 
and was created in the tank. The cast was very much in the minds of Universal as the film was being written. This is most notable in a clown character who was written specifically for Mickey Rooney. It was so tailored for Rooney that when he declined to be in the film, they removed the role entirely. The cast had to learn a lot in order to prepare for this production. Leah Thompson, in an early film role, had no experience water skiing. Dennis Quaid had never used a ski-doo. Simon McCorkendale had never even dived before. And actress Bess Armstrong had to learn to swim with whales and communicate with dolphins. The dolphins provided a big issue as they had to be trained to attack the giant prop shark, a behavior that they never needed in nature, so they had to learn it from scratch. There were a number of script changes made in order to realistically portray what a dolphin would actually be able to accomplish. Bess Armstrong at one point wears an anti-shark wetsuit that was created by Valerie Taylor who was the one who got the real-life shark footage with her husband for the original Jaws. Other than the one you see in the film, Valerie Taylor, at that time, had the only one in existence. Roy Scheider, upon hearing a third Jaws movie was in the works, quickly signed onto the film Blue Thunder so that it would be impossible for him to be in the movie, as he had a terrible time filming Jaws 2. The film was a hit by all intents and purposes, raking in $88 million. It was not a hit critically, but it made a hefty sum for Universal, especially given the fact that they briefly considered producing the film as a TV movie instead of a theatrical picture. There will be no creature breakdown for this episode, as the only true monster of the movie is SeaWorld itself. To get a full reign of their sins, would be an extremely long podcast and would tail a discussion of wider morality that is probably not what you're looking for from this show. Just watch the documentary Blackfish and you'll get a good idea of how awful it is to keep animals such as these in such small tanks, especially when they are so undeniably intelligent. We'll discuss SeaWorld at length when we eventually tackle the Dino De Laurentiis Jaws knockoff Orca as a majority of the issues within the park revolve around their treatment of killer whales, and the whales feature very, very briefly in Jaws 3D. That is the behind the scenes. Now, let's talk to about the film itself. And to do that, I have another wonderful guest for you this week. I have Caitlin. Hello, Caitlin. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on, uh, you know, uh, and sitting through that uh, giant... Uh, wave of information on the movie that was great i learned new things i've always loved jaws 3 and now i have some behind the scenes it's perfect yeah it, you know it, it actually um was a pretty difficult to find some behind the scenes information on this film um jaws and jaws 2 had full books to go through um jaws in particular have has multiple books and uh, jaws 2 has a book of its own about its creation but Jaws 3, no, not a whole lot. Uh, not Like the Blu-ray doesn't feature many special features. I had to basically go off of an old issue of Variety magazine, which I uh, happened to purchase. And there was a made-for-TV documentary before the film got released, which was like about an hour long and had about 10 minutes of interesting things about it. <laughs> well done on but, your end, though. 
Oh, well, thank you. I thank you. And I also do need to give credit to uh, Jason Drury, who uh, did help on some of the research for this, as he read uh, one of the books that uh, some of this information was gilded from. So thank you again, Jason. He's a champ. We love him. So, Caitlin, how did you get introduced to this movie? And what's your history with Jaws 3D? So I I feel like every summer, which may or may not be cliche, but every summer I like to do a Jaws run through and watch them all. And I've been doing that for honestly, as long as I can remember. I think I took a break in my college years, but I've uh, sort of resurrected it in my 30s. And I started last year, you know, with my Jaws marathon reboot and I rediscovered how much I love Jaws 3D and um, I actually made my boyfriend watch it with me and it was his first time so I got to watch it with you know sort of my experienced eye and his new eye at the same time and it was just delightful and I I love Jaws 3D. (laughs) Nice. Did he like it? Did he end up enjoying the film? He did. He had had a few drinks, so he really enjoyed it. And we uh, got into the habit of every time there was a scene that was, you know, obviously added for 3D purposes of yelling 3D. And um, that was yelled quite a bit. uh, Because That is amazing. They thoroughly, I mean, whoever went back or I don't, I don't know, you probably know more than I do, whether it was intended as 3D from the beginning or whether they decided to go 3D halfway through, but whoever included those 3D shots was very thorough and they did not disappoint. Yeah, it was actually uh, conceived fully as 3D from the get-go. Like, as soon as they ditched the idea of the parody, which, by the way, that, again, I mentioned it briefly in the notes, but everything about that parody, like the script, I read like a, a summary of the script online and it just sounds awful. So I am so glad they made a straight version of this. Uh, but uh, when they when they ditched that, they they decided to go full 3D. And they actually had to build a new... 3d camera for this uh usually when they do 3d it involves having to do well not usually because nowadays it's much more similar to how what they did but they actually did an innovation to make it happen uh as prior to this movie you really needed two cameras to do 3d properly and you would then kind of like overlay uh, you know, overlay the images uh, in that way using the the glasses. And the glasses are still part of Jaws, uh, Jaws 3D. I actually saw uh, quite, a, quite a bit of funny things online just showing what the glasses actually look like, and they had pretty cool designs to them. But they did it all with one camera, and it was just a split lens. So it did everything they needed without the need for an extra camera, which probably sped up filming a lot, because especially when you're doing a effects picture trying to get something to work well on two cameras must have been uh just hell to shoot i would imagine yeah well that makes sense and you know shout out for the innovation jaws 3d bringing all kinds of new stuff to cinemas hell yeah hell yeah i i think one of the best parts about jaws 3d that i was just kind of surprised about upon this rewatch like i've always enjoyed jaws 3d uh, honestly, it's probably my second favorite Jaws movie. I appreciate Jaws 2. I think Jaws 2 has a lot of fun things about it. Uh, but in in terms of just like sheer enjoyment factor, I honestly uh, can't. You can't really beat Jaws 3D. It's it's such a fun, uh, fun sequel. I was just impressed by the cast. I really forgot how good this core cast of characters is and how much you just kind of like them. 
Yeah, um, you're rooting for them from the beginning. There were, I feel like a lot of times in older horror movies, I, you know, there's always one that I'm like, oh God, like something they say is just really, really um, pulls me out of it and is not appropriate for, for 2020 or any time because of, you know, <laughs> horrible things their character might have said. Uh, but I really, really enjoy this cast. And we have them in sort of the Jurassic Park scenario. It's a it's SeaWorld. It's awesome. There's no better scenario for a giant killer shark to enter and just wreak havoc. It's I love the setup. Truly, truly. And I'm going to say something that's going to probably be borderline crazy. I think Jaws 3D is the scariest Jaws movie. I can I do get disagree. down with that. No, okay, I, I, can I can get down with that. Yeah, I feel like the kills from the beginning, from, you know, when we first are underwater at the gate, that's a pretty, I mean, it, it's not super explicit, but it is brutal. And the brutality that we see of the bodies later on. And I think the, I think that they, they play well on the idea of being trapped in a space, being, you know, in, in the other Jaws movies, you're sort of out in open water and there's a chance that the shark might be there. But in this one, we know the shark is in the park. We just don't know where. And that's scary. Right. I, I think also the way that some of the deaths are filmed and also some of the scenarios people are put in works very particular for my particular set of fears, I would say. Uh, like the idea of being trapped in those underwater tunnels as they slowly start filling Ooh. with water and everyone is just like freaking out and like going nuts and nobody's calm and nobody can figure out what the hell they're going to do. I find that like legitimately scary. And then um, I find the um, some of the deaths particularly gnarly. Um, the one where uh, the shark hunter, who again has one of the greatest names of all time in cinema history, I love his name so much, Philip Fitzroyce. When he <laughs> when he goes into like the filter tanks and the the tunnels and the drainage to fight the shark, and he doesn't get bitten in half, he gets trapped in the shark's mouth. Yeah. And he's like trying to like escape, but he can't get out and he's just getting crushed. And it's just like that sense of claustrophobia, like really hit in that, uh, in that moment. Also, you know, I just felt really bad for his lover who, uh, you know, <laughs> is, is just so distraught outside, uh, thinking of what he's going to do now that his, his poor hubby has passed away. At least that's the canon of, uh, of my version of Jaws 3D. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I, and that's such a scene because he's the only character, Fitzroyce, that you're like maybe sort of not rooting against, but you like roll your eyes because he's so pompous. And But that death, I remember watching it last night I, I, or the other night with Chase. And I was like, damn, I would just like, I would want either like my spine to crack or I would want like just to drown immediately. But being caught in the shark's just like mouth area and being slowly taken backwards is horrifying just horrifying right yeah i thought and i thought it was filmed really well too which uh which i thought was uh, was very unique uh you, you don't really get too many times uh especially in the jaws franchise i don't think you get any other times where you get to see in from the jaws like you can see from the belly of the shark basically uh yeah, you know normally if they Jonah do a, in the whale perspective <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and i do love how it plays in uh to the final death uh of the shark uh because you know philip fitzroyce has his good old grenades and it gets pulled and explodes um but 
I think um, the even the the characters that normally in these in Jaws movies are like the villains, quote unquote, uh, which is like the mayor in the first two Jaws movies and like the people who don't believe. I think it's completely rational that Louis Gossett Jr.'s character, Calvin Bouchard, would not believe there's a giant shark in his theme park. Yes. (laughs) At first, like it just, it's like, it's one of the most rational versions of that because you just be like, what do you mean? I own a theme park. (laughs) What do you mean a a shark broke in? Yeah, we killed the shark. Oh, no, no, that was the baby. And you're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think his reactions are, you know, are pretty fair and even keeled. And they don't, uh, you know, they don't go out of their way to give him like a mean death. Although his, um, so in that control room at the end, the one person who does get killed is the guy who is like operating, uh, is operating the, like, he's just one of the operators, I guess. He just the behind the scenes guy who operates this weird contrap, this control room that we don't really know what does, uh, what everything does. But that guy is supposed to be uh, Calvin Bouchard's like, uncle uh sorry not uncle obviously he's not that old uh his nephew um and his his nephew bites it and you're like oh no and kind of unceremoniously it just sweeps him up and you're like oh yep oh we're doing it okay (laughs) oh yeah he just boom bam om nom 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 and you're like all right wow damn um do you know the entomology like do you know the family tree of all these shark movies I don't know the family tree of the shark movies, but I will say, and I do this, <laughs> our friends at Bloody Good Horror have hosted some watch and chats, um, and we did 47 Meters Down, and I am a fan of the song Baby Shark, and I broke down 47 Meters Down into different refrains of Baby Shark, and this one, Jaws 3D, is all about the mommy shark, do 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 So I just wanted to say, for those of you that are following along at home with Baby Shark, we're on mommy shark right now. You know what? You're not too far off. You see, this is actually, okay, this shark, I shit you not, by the way, this is what this is supposed to be. So, first shark is Bruce. The second shark in Jaws 2 is supposed to, and was in very early drafts of the script, supposed to be the mate of Bruce. So it's supposed to be his wife, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Jaws the Revenge, is that is supposed to be the shark is supposed to be the daughter of, of Bruce and Brucette. I think it's Brucetta is what they call the shark and Jaws of Revenge. The one of my shark- favorite appetizers. Oh yes, you know, I love it. I love it. Um in Shark and sorry, in Shark 3D, no, in Jaws 3D, this shark, the mama shark, is supposed to be the child of the shark in Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> and it's <laughs> So the baby shark in this is supposed to be like the great grandchild of the shark from the original Jaws, which is wild, uh, <laughs> stupid to say, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, they, of course, they don't say this in any of the movies, but this is the ongoing uh, family tree that people have kind of, uh, you know, got in their heads. And it's uh, it's a wild way to look at these movies. Let's just say that. <laughs> And I kind of love the fact that they have the baby shark in there because 
I don't know, when you're watching it, you're like, oh, they've captured it and they're holding it in the tank. And, you know, for a second, it kind of wakes up after being tranquilized and you're like, oh, a little scary. But then when we find out that this is just the baby and we're looking for a 35 footer, there we go. Like that's when the fear starts to set in and it feels so good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like one of the only Jaws movies where they didn't have a lot of issues with the shark effects. So pretty much everything that they wanted to do in this movie, they did do. Uh, now, I know that and like we we briefly chatted about the end scene of the shark breaking through the control rooms. I know that does kind of get a few laughs, especially nowadays, but I still think it's effective. And again, I still think it's fun. It's one of those things where you know, it's it's obviously not the quality of the original Jaws, right? Like the original Jaws is like one of the best movies of all time, right? But Jaws 3D is just a perfectly acceptable, entertaining monster flick. Um, and I think to kind of look at it through that lens is probably going to lead you down the best path versus whether or not you want to, you know, break it down as like an artistic piece of cinema. Right, which is like it's it's sort of it's enjoyable in the same way as Deep Blue Sea is, which has a lot of similarities to Jaws 3D with the breaking into the control room and the slowly flooding. I um, you know, it's it stands for a lot here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And let me tell you, I have been in aquariums where they do have those open tunnel concepts. And uh, I think of this movie every time. I think of this movie every time. Of like, that's a motherfucking shark. It's going to break this in and we're going to drown in his water. And it's going to suck. But then Dennis Quaid is going to save me. So I guess it's going to be fine. <laughs> well, and it's funny that you say like the, I feel like the scene, one of the scarier scenes doesn't have the shark at all when they're in that one sort of um, closed off room when the group has sort of scurried chaotically and the tour guide is trying to get them to calm down and the oxygen is running low like that's a really scary scene and it doesn't have anything to do with the shark other than the shark is the one that sort of caused the malfunction but yeah there's a lot of sort of like dread in a lot of these scenes and the idea that like we got to save these people we got to get them oxygen also the shark is going to batter the rest of the you know tubes and cause a lot more damage there's a lot of dread at the end there that's not just sort of shark bite man you know it's right it it sets up it sets up like a very time sensitive issue too right like it just the way that it sets up the final act uh it just flows really well uh and i think this entire movie has like a great sense of flow uh and really kind of never misses a beat uh, even in the early scenes, uh, I think the human cast is just so tremendously enjoyable to see them interplay with each other that uh, it doesn't feel like a slog to get through. Because, you know, this is getting to 1983. This is 1983, right? So we're getting into the into the mix as far as like slasher films go and creature features of the 80s. And the idea of what 80s horror would become is kind of getting settled, settled in a little bit. And in those movies, especially, especially slasher films of this era, there are so many of them where you just dread getting through all of the like normal teenagers talking scenes. Um, and it just drags on and on. You're just like, oh, man, when is Jason just going to show up and fricassee <laughs> these kids? These kids are so annoying. Right, uh, and I just think is not it's not obnoxious. It's it's. I don't know, it, it endears you to the characters. It gives you an idea of like what the stakes are in terms of, you know, making the park a success. It's the exposition here just doesn't 
drag and it doesn't annoy me the way a lot of 80s horror does so I yeah I, I i yeah i agree i agree that i i think that bar sequence especially is probably one of my favorite in the movie uh because you just get all these characters at like the sea world bar which by the way i'm like is there a bar like that in sea world like is this supposed to be like <laughs> just off of the park i don't know that's wild okay that's cool uh, and I, I just think, uh, you know, they, they introduce Leah Thompson's superior sense of balance. They have that little, <laughs> that cute moment where she and one of the Brodies kind of, you know, uh, you know, have this kind of like relationship that starts blooming. I will say that one of the things that at the very least surprised me is the fact that they just kind of write off Sean Brody, like halfway through the film, uh, because Leah Thompson gets that injury. She gets like cut. She gets cut mm-hmm. by the shark, which is really cool, I think, right? Because that's an interesting injury we haven't really seen occur because of a shark. Um, it's just a simple like, yeah, the shark has like sharp, rough skin and it passed her. It drifted by her and rubbed up against her and it cut the shit out of her leg. Mm-hmm. And you get uh, get Leah Thompson and Sean Brody, his character is played by John Putch, which is an interesting name. Um, <laughs> they are just kind of written off the movie at that point. And I, I get it. It makes sense. Like, I'm kind of glad they didn't just come up with a convoluted way to keep, uh, you know, keep Sean Brody in the mix. And I think it does really uh, narrow down the characters you have to keep track of in that final act. It's just a little surprising mm-hmm. because, you know, they're supposed to be Brodies and they're the weird um, interconnectedness of the Brody family and the sharks, I guess. Well, that and, you know, I remember, so it was Chase's first time watching the movie and he was looking at the Wikipedia and he was like, oh, Leah Thompson's in this. And I was like, yeah, she is. And I think he was relieved that she was only injured and not killed, but he was missing her, I will say, for the rest of the film. But um, you know, that's sort of like now we know and appreciate Leah Thompson, but I think that I'm fine with the scenes that she was in because they were really effective. That bumper boat scene is so tense to me, especially when he's standing up trying to fix the motor. I was like, sit down, sit down. You know, it's so stressful. It is. It's very stressful. And like, this is Leah Thompson's second major film role. And the only reason she was cast in this movie is because uh, somebody was like, hey, the you see this Burger King ad? And she was in like a Burger <laughs> King ad and she got hired from a Burger King ad. And you're like, damn, like, yeah, good for her. And like, this is like Leah Thompson. And she would like go on to become one of the, like, the big. Well, I mean, I guess Leah Thompson would never hit it huge in terms of, um, you know, in terms of being a movie star. But uh, her role in the Back to the Future movies is just undeniably iconic right right that and uh howard the duck of course her other classic (laughs) classic performance which i just realized we will eventually talk about on the show (laughs) as there is a giant creature at the end oh joy oh joy (laughs) what did you think plot wise about keeping this in the family so to speak um are you okay with it being the Brodies or do you just not care you know I I had read some behind the scenes stuff about how there were a lot of sort of heavy sighs and eye rolling about the fact that they're you know the Brodies and you know they reference Amity you know I think maybe once but for me it's fine like that's enough for me to sort of 
you know, maintain the shark lore and these sort of one-off references of like, oh, my brother's super afraid of sharks because of some stuff that happened when we were a kid. That's enough for me. I don't need anything more. I definitely didn't need any flashbacks, so I'm glad we didn't get any of that kind of stuff. Um, it could have done without it. Like, I, I wouldn't have missed it, but I also don't mind it. It doesn't feel... Is it a little shoehorned? Yeah, probably, but it doesn't feel oppressively, like, obnoxious or obvious to me. It's just sort of like, yeah, that's right. fine. Okay, we're there, check. All right, move on. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I, and it does kind of make sense, at least from one of the Brodies becoming fascinated with marine biology, right, and ending up working at SeaWorld. It actually does make sense because there's usually two routes to go with childhood trauma is you either kind of, like, avoid it and repress it or you try to face it head on and have it you know and and really kind of yeah lean in and tackle it and and deal with it and i think that is kind of what happened with the with the brody boys and i think that is like a cool cool moment uh speaking of people who it's just very early in their career it is it is very strange to see dennis quaid in this movie every time it It happens it just it just (laughs) weirds me out because i don't ever think of dennis quaid as being young I just, it weirds me out. I don't understand it because Dennis Quaid is like forever dad for me. Like he just looks like a dad. Like in any movie, he should be a dad. And he's not a dad. He's like a young person. And you're like, this is weird. I don't, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. This, this is weird, but he's great. He's great though. Yeah, he does a great job. Every time I, you know, I think of him as his character and then every so often I'll be like, oh, that's Dennis Quaid. But that pulls me out of it a little bit, just knowing who he is now and the types of roles he's cast in now. So it's better for me to sort of forget that he's Dennis Quaid. But <laughs> I just, you know, I enjoy it. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I mean, he holds that dog's ears as that dog drinks water. I was like, why? why? It's so sweet. And why is that dog not in more of the movie? He, there's a scene with his dog. He's he's drinking on the table. He's drinking out of his like little water dish. And then like uh, you know, Bess Armstrong comes by and she's just like, "Hey, get the dog off the table. Like, don't let him. Don't let him eat on the table." And it's just it's just like this uh, this very cute. That, that's one of the things that the Jaws movies really focus on is the family dynamics like family dinners family breakfasts that early morning uh idea of human interaction is something that comes up in every jaws movie honestly uh breakfast is a big thing for the brodies and (laughs) they really do tackle uh tackle the idea of waking up which is i don't know i you don't really see a lot of movies that focuses on our main characters in the morning, so to speak. Uh, and, and the fact that it happens in every single Jaws movie is just a surprise to me. And I, and it, I delight, I like it. I delight it uh, because it always just introduces exactly what they need to do in a given day. And they're usually in a rush and they're like, it allows them to have little character moments, but still feel like a family and still feel like they have lives and the exposition doesn't feel as heavy because it just feels more natural when they say it over a cup of coffee. Um, and it's, it's tender. Like you get the moment with the dog and you're like, Oh, the dog needs a little doggy headband to keep his ears back. And then you get like sort of hungover brother. That's, you know, like, Oh, there he is just being hungover, wishing he had gotten it in last night. And you know, you, you get the little tender moment of like, I'll oh, be beep, beep, beeper, 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 beeper. And it's just, it's kind of cute. Yeah. Oh, no, it's it's yeah, I agree. It's it is kind of cute. And again, it's one of those things where 
I mean, I, I wonder if we, we just look at this, these movies a little differently because we have so much experience with the genre, right? Because like in the horror genre, especially horror sequels, you very rarely get this kind of enjoyable character dynamics that don't uh, make you want to die by, you know, whatever <laughs> killer is roaming in the woods, taking these teens out. So I just, it just, you know, I keep hammering back on this one point, but I swear to God, it's worth hammering out on in that the characters in Jaws 3D are great. They are. And I feel like I know what you mean. I think especially with horror franchises, there is the idea that, okay, the first one was scary. We need to up it and make the next one scarier. And then we need to make that one even scarier and gorier. And we, I feel like we do get a really good escalation of fear and dread and gore in this one. Um, just given, you know, when we see the, the gate fixer guy and when we, you know, we talked about how scary a lot of these scenes are. But we still get some of the tenderness and some of the character development that I think a lot of franchise movies lose as they move forward in their franchise. So I, I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, honestly, even Jaws 2, like, I think this does some stuff better than Jaws 2 because the team, like, uh, I mean, last episode, you, you hear me talk about how I, I do enjoy parts of the teens in Jaws 2 because it really does just feel like teens being teens. Um, but there's no real character to any of the teens. Like, it just seems like it's a naturalistic slice of life. Uh, uh, you know, cinema verite version of teens uh, where they don't really have any character. You're just seeing people meander and be on vacation and hang out in a flotilla where uh, here, you know, everyone has a point. Everyone has jobs to do. They're adults. You know, they're a little bit more relatable in that regards and they all have goals and you can follow their trajectories and, and uh Yeah. Um, let's just say Jaws of Revenge has a little bit of difficulty with that as well, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into next week and it'll be a blast because I'm going to be crazy again and say, I have some good things to say about Jaws of Revenge. <laughs> Do you, if you were going to make another Jaws movie from jaws 3d where do you think you would have took it as a franchise and do you think uh this would have been a good ending point for the series or do you think there is other avenues they could have explored uh before voodoo sharks (laughs) i i really do like the conclusion of this because you know they've trapped it in the park we're confined we're contained we have a really good shark destruction we'll say and it's not a bad place to end it and i unironically do enjoy the sincerity of the end where it's like joyful we're swimming the dolphins are jumping it's just like it's a really sweet little moment so i wouldn't mind if we stopped here but just the horror fan in me and the jaws fan in me is very appreciative that we kept going um from where it could have gone from here i feel like we could have taken it in a jurassic world type of scenario where okay now we are doing you know some sort of specialized privatized tours a la 47 meters down slash jurassic world where you know thrill-seeking tourists can go down and and see such great white sharks but on purpose and then have disaster strike um which, you know, that could be an option. Or, you know, I, I kind of really do like the direction that Deep Blue Sea took, you know, having sort of that outpost and having a really, 
well, I mean, there were genetically engineered sharks, like bred to be aggressive, which is, you know, next level. But I, I feel like those directions have been explored, just not under the Jaws name. But I'm glad that we got those sort of uh, vistas. Right, right. I mean, um, the other other ways, other places you could have took this. Uh, I would have liked to see a sequel where it's like Jaws in Venice. Like, you know, somewhere where it's like, uh, you know, it's very landlocked. Sorry, the opposite of landlocked. There's access to the sea and it's very canal based and have like a shark in a canal. Like, I'd be down for that. Like, that would be awesome. That would Um, be great. That would be great. Uh, I'm amazed Jaws never went to space. I'm amazed. (laughs) Never happened. Never happened. Uh, Well, kind of funny. Yes, yet, yet. It is kind of funny that I make that joke. Um, One of the uh, places that does have a giant water tank is Pinewood Studios, which is, uh, Pinewood Studios is in, uh, is in Europe and in Britain. And I believe they were filming uh, one of the James Bond movies uh, and were using the water tank so they couldn't use uh that one and the james bond franchise does have a character named jaws so look at that Ooh. or we it's could take all... it in like a a scream three direction where we're watching the making of a shark horror movie and the animatronic shark becomes for whatever reason and by any manner um purposefully aggressive and attacks the actors while they're in the filming the scenes we could go that direction there was there were hints of that in the parody script, uh, and and some of that was not terrible. Uh, it's the jokes that they had around it that were terrible. But yeah, the idea of like you're making a shark movie and then some type of shark chicanery, whether or not it's like animatronic or otherwise, starts starts happening. Like that would be amazing. What if Jaws the ride came to life, uh, and that is what started killing people, like in Universal Studios. <laughs> That would be horrific, and it would be perfect. <laughs> it would be perfect. It's uh, apparently, uh, you know, just speaking of Jaws the Ride, because Jaws the Ride is very much Jaws 2 uh, in the fact. Like, did you ever get a chance to go on Jaws the Ride? I have not. I've seen, you know, photos and sort of, you know, clips of it, but I've not ridden it, no. Oh, I, I, I'm sorry to hear that. It's a, uh, it is amazing. Uh, it was a great, it was a great experience, and I was very mad that it got taken by Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> I'm still not over it, to be honest. But the, uh, the, it was very much like a recreation of Jaws two, in that they even have like a scarred looking shark, uh, which is what happens in Jaws two, and they apparently wanted to bring back that shark for this movie at first like when they were first in the early scripting stages because i guess they were trying to uh you know make up a like horror universe and basically make it like friday the 13th where you know the same shark now just keeps coming back and back and back and i think that would have been uh very goofy but i also think i would have enjoyed that that would have been very funny i i do think uh one of the things that jaws you know jaws two does that this one doesn't do is really makes the shark itself unique because there's like that burn marks on it. It's got the scarring and looks a little spookier that way. There's nothing about this shark that makes it any different than looking than the other sharks in the franchise aside from Jaws two, obviously. But if you're playing a movie straight, right? Because this movie is it's, it's playing it for real and trying to do a serious movie. 
um, you know, you're not going to, I don't know, like cut off half of its fin or something like you're not going to you're not going to do those more uh, horror movie trope things because it's supposed to be nature attacking and it's just nature. It's not malice, uh, at least in this film. Right. It's not one of those scenarios where we're sort of like kind of like in other horror movies where you get endeared to the villain you kind of get endeared to freddy for better or worse and like you're kind of almost rooting for them to be on the screen we don't necessarily want to root for their kills but you're rooting for them to be on the screen because you've developed this sort of i guess affection for the character but no we don't really get that here because it it is just a big old shark you know which is scary enough in and of itself we don't need to have it be characterized but I, i appreciate what you're saying yeah, no, and I, and I do at the end of the day, I do agree with what you're saying, right? You don't really uh, like the the reason why uh, you go to like these characters so much is that they don't spend so much time with the villain, right? Because especially in later Nightmare on Elm Street movies, it's just as it's more about Freddy than it is about some of the characters. Right. And that and that kind of bleeds. I mean, I love all those movies. Believe me, we'll we'll be talking about Dream Warriors next month. Uh, so just be prepared for that, <laughs> folks. Uh, and I love that movie. But, you know, there is a certain amount of truth in that. And Jaws uh, in what it do- it just uses the shark for terror and for kills and doesn't spend time being like, and here it is raising its child. And oh, isn't it beautiful <laughs> how much it loves its family? And you just murdered the family. <laughs> I mean, we yeah, we, like you mentioned in the uh, in the intro, we can get into <laughs> the revenge of the SeaWorld animals eventually, but which which also would have been a fine direction. But I I do like that they play this one straight because it's scary enough just having a big ass shark trapped in your park. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I am amazed that SeaWorld just let them do this movie because there are like in SeaWorld now in Orlando, I I've been there. Um, I feel a little bad for it now, but I was there when I was younger. And um, they do have the tunnels like they have the tunnels like the, in this movie, they they made them after the fact they um, in this movie, they like openly show that they're not good with animals because they literally get the, sh- the baby shark killed because they're being irresponsible. And this is supposed to be the guy who's in charge of SeaWorld with the name SeaWorld. So this is branded SeaWorld trademark, right? Like, it's like you are showing your park to be irresponsible. And while we now know that is relatively true, uh, back then it did not seem like that would be something that would get people to go to your facility. But I guess it must have worked. Like, I'm sure uh, I'm sure this did end up being a weird advertisement for SeaWorld. Um, but it didn't feel like it. Which is nice because um, sometimes when a movie sets parts of uh, of the picture in a theme park, it can end up feeling less like what it's supposed to like. It feel like it feels like an ad instead of feeling like a natural setting for a movie. And they don't make this an ad, so it feels natural and it works. I know, and I think the older I get, <clears throat> the older I get, and the more I watch this movie, the the stranger it is to have the branded name SeaWorld be the park. It's just so bizarre to think of. I I guess it, back then it wasn't as um, controversial of an idea, I suppose. But yeah, every every time they mention SeaWorld specifically, I'm like, oh, yep, that's it. That's a capital C, like your capital S SeaWorld. Yeah, yeah SeaWorld, SeaWorld. I said SeaWorld. <laughs> 
SeaWorld. Both are fine. Both are fine. Yeah, you're just you're just talking about the people who own SeaWorld. No, well, we've seen Blackfish. Yeah, it's it's fucked up. <laughs> it's fucked. It's fucked up. He fucked up. Uh, I, apparently, uh, you know, Bess Armstrong was one of the like the first people to ride Shamu on camera. So that was that's a thing that happened because of this movie. I'm, but because uh, of Blackfish, I'm, I noticed that Shamu's fin has the dorsal collapse, and I'm just like, oh, his yeah. little fin has collapsed, and I'm just so upset about it. Yeah, I know. I'm really sad about that, too. Um, what, one of the reasons why we're really going to talk about, eventually we're going to talk about the movie Orca on this podcast, which is a Jaws ripoff uh, by Dino De Laurentiis. And in that one, the effects are actually really, really good. And the only way you can tell whether or not it's a real shark sorry, a real orca or it's one of the captive orcas that they had doing tricks is the dorsal fin and it makes you super depressed because the because the <laughs> effects look real good in that movie and then you go, oh, but that's a real one because it's captured and its dorsal fin is bent down and now I'm sad. <laughs> I actually have not seen those, but it sounds like I need to. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty great. Like half, like the first like 20 minutes of Orca is just someone like moralizing about how great killer whales are and how mean we are to them. And it's actually pretty great. It takes the, cause Jaws, the, the original Jaws had a bad impact on, uh, on fish and shark, uh, preservation. Um, and since people who have been involved, like Peter Benchley does a lot of, uh, activist work now, but, um, the movie Orca tried to like circumvent that by pretty much leaving all of your positive feelings with the killer whale. Cause the killer whale is actually sympathetic and is characterized as like being a great dad. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's what I joked about. They could have done with this movie. They actually did with Orca where they, they pretty much make the Orca the hero, uh, which is just, which is just wild. Uh, but yeah, different, different movie, obviously, but. Uh, well, we've I am, always needed am, a, a Father's Day movie, so. Yeah, exactly. I am very surprised, though, that the killer whales don't play into this movie at all. Um, you know, especially because in Jaws 2, there is that scene where you find the beached orca, right? Like that the, the killer whale uh, has been killed by the shark. And in this one, like the killer whales just hang out in their own plight. They, they don't they don't fuck with sharks. They just, they just live their lives. Yeah, they're it's just sad. chilling in their their two small tank, and we we do get the uh, the dolphins. And I didn't know when you had mentioned at the beginning, I didn't know that the dolphins had been trained to sort of do shark attacks, you know, like attacks against sharks, we should say. But uh, yeah, I I did mention that I love the end where the dolphins are celebrating with them, and that that's very <laughs> touching. But yeah, we really it's Cindy and the other dolphin was what was it, Cindy and. Oh goodness gracious! I, I one of them is named Capricorn in real life. Uh, I forget oh. what the other one's named is. Um, the actual dolphin trainers had to be like put in the movie as characters so that they could make them do things. And I believe they the dolphin trainers are like the the people who are Bess Armstrong's like assistants that you see throughout the movie interacting. And I believe those guys are the are, are actually the dolphin trainers. And it was it's it's a lot easier when they just like you know, if they, they have a relationship with these humans. So if they point and tell them to do something, they'll go do it. So that makes yeah, sense. A lot. But yeah, apparently, uh, you know, they, they spent so much time trying to teach the dolphins, like where to attack on the shark and like where to, you know, what to do. And then as soon as the, um, uh, they actually got in the water with the prop shark, they started act reacting like it was, you know, they started trying to intimidate it and stuff and reacted like it was real. <laughs> 
and you're like, oh, wow. So they, they wasted all that time, but they did need it to hit specific spots. So they had to like, you know, instruct them to like whap it here and try to like guide it here and do like a tail slap and stuff like that. And it's, it's nothing too crazy, but uh, you know, it's a, it's enough that, you know, it, it, it holds up on, on film. I think it helps the believability of the shark prop when you see real fish interacting with it. You do. And that's, I mean, that's a step that they maybe didn't have to take. I think at the time, just given ability for FX, it makes sense that they did. And I'm glad they did. It um, definitely, yeah, color me impressed. I feel like we see some of that in, maybe it was Deep Blue Sea 2, but like just all of the animatronic interactions and all the FX interactions are just awful. So having actual animals, I mean, you know, looking back probably for the worst, but you know, having that happen is you know, fairly impressive. They went through some detail there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a bit surprising. Um, I love the way they superimpose their jump at the very end because it does not hold <laughs> up super well. <laughs> I don't know what what kind of like if they just couldn't get them to jump at that point and they just had to like cut in a different portion of them actually jumping and then superimpose it over the film. And I love how hokey it looks. Like I it's hokey, but I love it. I love it so much. Um it does like one of the things about all of the Jaws sequels um, is that they kind of all really only act like Jaws one happened. That seems to kind of be the thing that happens with mm. Jaws sequels because they don't explicitly say anything about dealing with two sharks. They kind of just reference a shark um, and I'm Jaws two could still have happened and honestly could have maybe been what really traumatized them. Uh, although they do, I don't know, because the Brody boys are the ones who are in that, uh, in the little pond that gets attacked in the original Jaws, where that dude yeah. gets his leg bitten off. So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, they don't really have to do anything to negate Jaws 2, but it does kind of feel like one of those movies where only Jaws exists. Which is not, I mean, not super uncommon in a lot of horror franchises. I mean, less so with the 80s, I suppose, but not super uncommon going forward. Yeah, no, of course, of course. And and I mean, it's just wait until next week when I try to wrap my head around the semblance of continuity and whether or not any of the Jaws movies happened, even the original Jaws in Jaws 4. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that'll be a journey. That'll be a journey. Um, but you know, um, Caitlin, is there, is there any other topics that you think we haven't really dwelled into in terms of this movie? And do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to get into? Um, so I did not realize that when in the intro you had mentioned that the control room shot cost $50,000 and like, we did have a couple of like chuckles while watching the shark approach that scene because they try really hard to get it in that 3d sort of like. Dana, dana, it's coming <laughs> sort of vibe um so like that's pretty hokey but when we look at that shot it is pretty well done and it is a dangerous take to do um i didn't realize that they actually submerged that set piece underwater that's 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 pretty impressive i don't know yeah. like i don't know how i thought they did it but it just didn't occur to me that they actually did that and that um yeah, that that took some guts on on part of the stunt doubles and part of the filming crew. So, kudos. 
Yeah, they, apparently they, they had put the stunt guys in to test the water rushing in to see if the very first time they did it, to see if they could get the actual actors in there. But then they realized, like, oh, man, Lewis Gossett Jr. has, like, a bad hip. Like, we cannot put him in this scenario. Like, this will just destroy his body. So we're not going to put any of these guys in there. Uh, and, you know, it's prob- probably good for everybody that they did not do that. <laughs> yeah, they're keeping him safe. We appreciate it. But, yeah, I mean, that scene is so memorable. We, I mean, we talk about the rushing water scenes in general and how scary they are. And I feel like that would have been um logistically a nightmare to film and also it would have freaked me out to film it so oh yeah oh yeah i uh i 100 percent uh agree with that one um so yeah i guess that is jaws 3d uh you know i don't think i don't think either of us uh feel like it deserves the kind of ire and the rudeness and the comments and the jeers that it gets when people bring up this movie and honestly, I think it might be one of the better, uh, if not the best, 3D sequel. Uh, I love um, Friday the 13th Part 3, but, you know, it's not a great movie. Um, and, you know, less less said about Amityville 3D, the better. Um, although I did always, here's a pitch. I wanted uh, the Amityville horror house to be moved to Amity Island and then the Amityville ghosts have to fight the shark. I think. That I mean, that can be written by you. I would. I if start a Kickstarter. I'll pitch in some money. Damn. Perfect. <laughs> perfect. Uh, you know, I'll uh, I'll make a, a buttload and then run off to the Philippines <laughs> or something. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah. So you know, Joss 3D. It's good. We like it. So if you disagree, that's fair. You know, everyone everyone has different opinions. Uh, you thought I was going to say screw you, but no, no, it's fair. But <laughs> and you, you know, if you things. don't like it, you can turn it into a drinking game where every time you see a shot that's obviously supposed to be a 3D effect, take a shot or take a drink. Don't take a shot, you'll die. But take a drink and you'll have a really good time. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. Caitlin, where can we find you on the interwebs? I am at Caitlin Grant on Twitter. So that's C-A-I-T-L-I-N-G-R-A-N-T. And I also do our our good friend's podcast. I almost said his real name, but he uses a pseudonym on the podcast, but Thor's Hour of Thunder, which you've been on a couple times as well. So you can find me there. I have, and I have had to edit out me saying his real name on many, (laughs) many episodes um, because it's hard to not. Uh, to not just say for someone's name. So I, I feel it your uh, feel your pain. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can rank us five stars or whatever you feel on any podcasting platform that allows reviews. You can email us at milkshakesandmimosas at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at WineMovieNerd. If you're interested in any and all of the sources used for this episode, you will find them in the show notes attached to this podcast. And if you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, you may do that at patreon.com. Just look up Milkshakes and Mimosas. Thank you for joining, and have yourself a great day. Goodbye.